All right, good morning, fellowship. Hey, you guys want to stand with me as people are walking in? Let's, uh, let's join in and worship together this morning, okay? Come on. 
us and have a seat. Meeting with Lisa, it, it's kind of one of those where I'm getting to see the fruit of somebody sharing what someone shared with her, right? Because she's talked about mentors and people that have poured into her life. So watching her receive that and then turn around and share that with me has been really neat to watch. Just kind of, I believe, how the Lord designed the church. I am originally from Joplin, Missouri. Grew up there most of my life, accepted Christ when I was little. Moved down to Arkansas to go to the U of A. Stayed plugged in in church there. And then graduated and got a job teaching middle school up here. Community, when I moved up here, was hard to create and find in the middle of the pandemic. So one of the things that I knew I needed that I was missing was community of believers my age. Once I was plugged into the community group here, kind of was just taking inventory of my life and who I was allowing or asking to speak into it. And I'm really blessed to work at a school with, with believers and am surrounded by women who love the Lord, but I didn't really have that person that, that I felt like I could go to to challenge me and to seek wisdom from. So I asked Alex if she knew anybody and she connected me with Lisa Smith. And um, so Lisa and I started meeting back in February and we meet just about every week or every other week. I think in the beginning, it was just getting to know each other. I was nervous, but she has just become someone that I really trust. She knows most of my life. And I think it, it's important to have those couple of people that you are just an open book with. She's just someone that I really look up to and value. And I know that every time I hear from her, it is out of what she's seen the Lord do in her life. She's bringing things that I bring to her to the feet of Jesus, and that is just so valuable. Getting plugged into community is, one, just important, right? To have community of believers around you, someone to run the race alongside you. But also, I think that we can get really narrow-headed and have our eyes down just on where we are in life, and having someone that's discipling you kind of forces you to look up and to look out and beyond where you are, that there is a life beyond this one year that you're in or this season that you're in. And to see believers that have made it and have a track record with the Lord is just, it's inspiring to keep going. And you kind of get to feed off of, of their faith and their journey and get to see where the Lord was faithful to them, which is just allows me to trust the Lord more, to see his faithfulness in the community of believers around me and his faithfulness in Lisa, it just, it pushes me to keep going. Good morning, Fellowship Bentonville. It's wonderful to see y'all. Um, my name's Perry Ortiz. I'm a resident with our Special Needs and Disability Ministry. Um, I just wanna echo Mackenzie and what she said in this video. Community is so important as a young adult, um, as a student, as a, a grown adult, any age you are in life, it is so important to get connected and get involved. I've seen how it has an importance in my life and those surrounding um, mine as well. So if you aren't connected, we would love to get you connected, whether that's with a community group, discipleship, mentorship, any of those options, we would love to speak with you about that. 
Um, I would also love to talk to you about what's going on in our ministry. So our special needs ministry happens every single Sunday, but we do have a wonderful mission trip coming up here soon. So we will be taking a team of about seven leaders down to police um, to put on so many different things. We have a VBS that we'll be doing for people with special needs. We'll be doing home visits. We'll also be teaching people how to sew so that they can create um, different items to be then be able to sell and make a profit from. So we're going to be doing so many different things down there, and we're going to be able to work specifically with our friends that um, and our families that are impacted by special needs and disabilities. And um, so most importantly, as Y'all are our congregation and our family. We ask for prayer over this trip as we travel down there. Um, may the Lord's hand of safety be over us. May our eyes be open. May our hands be open to whatever the Lord has for us, but also for the families that we're gonna be working with. Um, may they be able to receive and hear the gospel so well. Um, we are so excited to be able to share that with them for the span of 10 days, getting to know them through VBSs and through songs and through activities, through uh, PT and OTs that are coming to help support them learn skills. We're just super excited to be able to take the 10 days that we're there to be able to show these families love and the gospel. Um, so if y'all will just be praying for that over the next few weeks as we're about to leave here in like a couple weeks. Um, so we're super excited for that. Um, so yeah, if you have any questions about the Belize trip, feel free to contact me. I would love to answer any questions. And then also if you have any questions about our special needs and disability ministry in general, I would love to talk with you about that and tell you more about how that goes. So thanks y'all. I'm going to go ahead and pray us into a time of worship. If you'll bow your heads with me. Dear Jesus, I just thank you for this day. Um, thank you that we all get to come together and that this is a form of community of believers that just truly yearn to know your soul. May we just sit in a place here where we are eager to hear your voice, Lord. Uh, may our hands be open wide and our ears hear your voice. Lord, thank you for this day. Um, thank you that all you've done in our lives and thank you that all you'll continue to do over the next few months, the next few days, the next few years, Lord. We are so grateful for what you have done in our lives. It's your wonderful name we pray, amen. Amen, thanks, Perry. We are so thankful for what God's doing in that ministry, and I'm so thankful for you guys. These faces in this room, it's such a joy every week uh, to worship with you guys. Uh, my name is Jared. Uh, I actually get the privilege to be a, a worship shepherd here at Fellowship Bentonville, and I, I wouldn't trade this time for the world with you guys. And I want to encourage you guys this morning. We're in this David series where we're going to walk through his life, and we're going to see the ups and downs of David, and we're all going to be able to relate uh, to his life in certain ways. But I wanted to pick out something, and I'm gonna teach you a new song, but the, the key point in it is this phrase that David says all throughout Psalms, more than a dozen times, he comes back to this phrase that, God, you are my rock. And I was, I was praying through that this morning, and, and these thoughts came to my mind, which I think is why David keeps coming back to this phrase of God in his world of a roller coaster of of things that go on in his life, he comes back to the solid rock who is God. Where David is ever changing, but God, he, he is never changing. And there's a couple of things that I pulled out. I feel like the Holy Spirit was leaning on my heart saying, what it means for God to be the rock, it means that he's trustworthy. It means that he's safe. And it means that he's strong. And for the weary heart in this room this morning, we can take heart to that. 
that God is the rock and he cannot be moved. And I love that that's in verse 18, he says that and in verse uh, chapter 19, David takes it a step further and he says, oh Lord, you are my rock and you are my redeemer. And he takes it to a whole new level of saying, God, you are not only constant and true and safe and strong, you are hope. He's hope for all of us this morning to take the mess and make it into something good. And so I wanna teach you guys a new song and then I'll invite you into it, but it all revolves around this idea of God being our rock and being the one who redeems. Let me teach you it. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, greatest treasure of my longing soul, my God, like you there is no other, true delight is Your love. 
let's sing these words together. His oath is covenant, his blood support me in the you are worthy of our praise, God. You are our rock and our redeemer. You're here with us in this place, Lord. Father, as Hunter gets up to teach the story of David and Goliath, just pray that you'd be with us. You'd inspire us with your word, your story. That that word wouldn't just be a story, it'd be something that transforms how we live our lives, God be a force for your gospel in this place. For all these in your name, amen. Amen. Well, does anybody else uh, feel like the Old Testament portion of the Bible is just a bit overwhelming? Hard to understand? Just me? Okay, great. Um, well, for me then, and for those of you who might feel that, um, we've got students in here who weren't with us last week, had their own service. We've got New folks who weren't here, we're, we're in a, a David series, and so I just want to briefly give you kind of a setup of where we are in the Old Testament. Um, and so these uh, six movements come from a series that uh, we have produced here at Fellowship called Panorama of the Bible. Um, it is a, a look at the Bible through 12 movements and kind of gives you an overview. All of it is available free online if you're like, man, I could... I could use a touch-up on that. Uh, you can go to fellowshipbentonville.org backslash panorama, and you can see all these resources. And so kind of getting us to, to movement six, which is where we find the story of David, uh, we can trace uh, God's people from the original creation and fall all the way to him establishing a group of people as his people through patriarchs. Uh, this nation would be called Israel, and they had some good times. They had some really hard times, end up wandering through the desert looking for this promised land. They finally conquer this promised land uh, to establish as their own and then still jump into this sin cycle where they just can't get their stuff together and they rebel from God. And so that leads us to this, this point, what we would call movement six, which is uh, kingship. And so God has uh, given his people uh, prophets and priests and judges to help govern uh, them, to help communicate to them, but it's never really fully worked. And one of the key figures uh, in this section, his name is Samuel. So Samuel is a miracle baby. I mean, he actually is the final judge of Israel, um, but he's one of the first true prophets for Israel, and he's also a priest. He's a stud. He can kind of do it all. And, uh, but eventually, he gets old and can't really rule anymore, but he puts his two sons in charge, and they end up being corrupt. Um, they're awful. And uh, Israel is like, we are done with this system. Here's what we want. We want a king, all right? We, we want a king to rule over us, which would be hard for Samuel to hear. Imagine all the people that you're leading, that your family is leading, and they look at you and say, we don't want you anymore. 
Like we want something different. And so God tells him, hey, Samuel, don't sweat it. It's not you, it's me, okay? It's me they have rejected as their king. Don't take it too hard. And so here's what I want you to do, Samuel. Tell him everything that's gonna happen. This is a really, really bad idea. So I want you to, to lay it out for them and listen to them, but warn them. So Samuel goes to the people and, and he says, hey, this is gonna be bad. If we do this, uh, these kings are gonna take the best of everything we have, including your servants, your livestock, your daughters. Um, you will cry out for God. He won't answer you. He has warned you. And how do they respond to that warning? We don't care. Give us a king because we wanna be like the other nations that are around us. And there's so much to unpack there, but this is not our text. This is just a preview, so we're gonna keep rolling. God says, okay, give them what they want. And so Israel uh, moves from this group of tribes kind of ruled by judges to a singular nation with a king. And there would be three kings uh, in this united kingship. The first one is Saul. And Saul is more handsome than anyone in the nation. He's a head taller than anyone around. He's the manly man who steps in to lead, but he doesn't fully obey God. And he actually lies about it, and God can no longer trust him to lead his people. And so that's where we pick up the story last week. Mark walked us through kind of the beginnings of David because uh, when God realizes Saul is not fit, he goes and he looks for another king, and he tells Samuel, I want you to go. I want you to go to the house of Jesse, and my new king is gonna be there. He's gonna be one of his sons. And so they looked through all of them, and we saw last week that it comes to the youngest, and God says, that's my king. And in a private ceremony amongst his brothers, David is anointed for kingship that would come later. And remember, the Spirit of God in the Old Testament would dwell upon individuals for a specific uh, task to empower and to equip them. And so at this point, the Spirit leaves Saul, and he comes and he dwells with David. Now, Saul is still king, but David uh, is still a boy. And as Saul's story begins to decline, uh, David's goes up, and that's kind of what we watch in this book of First and Second Samuel as David begins to rise. And so one of the things he does is he plays the liar for Saul. Um, Saul is looking for someone to help because now he has an evil spirit that's tormenting him. And so whenever David, as a boy, comes in and serves Saul and he plays kind of the small harp, that spirit goes away, and Saul is able to live peacefully in those uh, moments. And so during this season, David would go back and forth from Saul's company to play the liar back home to his father to shepherd sheep and to do his job. And so we pick it up in 1 Samuel 17, where we see what I think is safe to say a pretty dramatic turn uh, in David's story. And it starts like this. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war. So the Philistines are the perennial enemies of Israel at that time. So they were good with metal. We actually see earlier that they are the ones who produce the metal for the weapons that Israel would even use. So there's a little bit of a relationship there, but they just keep attacking and keep uh, taking over. And so in this scene, we have this Valley of Allah with hills on both sides. You've got the Philistine army on one side, and you've got the Israelite army on the other side, and a war is about to break out. But before it does, a champion named Goliath comes out of the Philistine camp. And we don't know a lot about Goliath, but we do know this. He was tall, okay? Very tall. Uh, says in scripture here that he was about nine foot nine. And so I was here with a tape measure this week to make sure that is accurate. That's about 10 feet tall. Justin Craning designed it. 
The average Israelite at the time, about 5'6", my people, right? And so this is, this is what they are looking at in this valley. Like, I want you to picture that. You've got all these men looking, and they see someone that tall standing there saying, we are about to fight. We don't know a ton about him. We don't know if he just has really tall parents or is he kind of a product of the Nephilim, which were these like angelic human type beings. And we're not given a ton except that he is really, really intimidating. All right. So don't miss the imagery here. You've got this gap between these two people and in it, there's something to be done. And there's two things in the gap. There's a valley and there's a champion. Champion's actually a terrible interpretation of what the original uh, word was in Hebrew. It's called benaim, and it literally translates to the man of the in-between, right? The man in between two places. Um, why do I bring that up? Because I think it, it's only mentioned twice in all of Scripture, both here in chapter 17 describing Goliath. There's something very unique about this man as he stands in between these Two peoples. I think it shows that he's a figure that's much larger than just a human that God is going to use to speak like a megaphone to all surrounding nations one way or another. And he's not just big, he's decked out with armor. You've got bronze this, bronze that. You've got the iron tip of his spear, which is said to be about 15 pounds by itself. Some scholars compare the, the scales of armor that he was wearing to that of a serpent which could signify that Goliath is, is more than a man. He's an image. He's not just a man. He's an image of evil that is going to be brought down through God's sovereignty. He even has a shield bearer who, who goes before him, someone whose sole purpose is just to keep him alive. And so in the midst of the armies of Israel, Goliath issues a challenge, and they can all hear him. He said, let's go. 1v1. I'm the best from the Philistine camp. You send out the best, win or take all. We don't even have to go to war, win or take all. And he's shouting this in this in-between. Both sides are hearing him and seeing him. And the words that he's using show how uh, Goliath interprets the people of God. He doesn't say these are God's peoples. He says, y'all are servants of Saul, right? Today I defy the armies of Israel, not the armies of God. Now in this moment, there's one clear choice, in my opinion, for a person from the Israelite camp to step in and take on this challenge, and it's Saul, right? If he's walking in the spirit, it's a no-brainer. He's the one leading God's people. Israel wanted a king that, quote, would lead them in battle. He was the one with armor, we'll find out. He's a head taller than everyone else. He's the closest to that 10 feet that you could get, yet he would not take it. Scripture's gives us that insight that it wasn't just Israel who was terrified, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And I just picture him going, this is it, we're done. And they can't see the centuries that Yahweh has walked with them and delivered them. And they can't see through this Benaim that he's just there taunting them. And in fact, it goes on for a while, right? David doesn't just step in and save the day. It says that for 40 days, Goliath would come up and he would yell these things at Israel. No one would come and take him on. Now, 12 through 18 uh, in this chapter shows us that David is still in that process of just going back and forth. 
right? Serving um, Saul by playing the harp and then going back to be a shepherd. And uh, while he's with his dad, his dad says, hey, take these supplies. You've got a couple brothers who are in the army there. I want you to take these uh, supplies to them. And the fact that David was anointed at 12, he wouldn't become king till he was 30. He's not in the army yet, so he's under 20. He's probably a late teenager. So FSM, picture someone your age. That's this, this boy, this kid. And so he takes the supplies, like his father says, and he goes there, he leaves them with the baggage guy, and he, he goes out into battle to find his brothers. And while he's there, he hears something. Okay, for, for 40 days, Goliath's come out and shouted these things, but verse 24 says, or 23 says, and David heard him. And so the, the story starts to shift right here. Now, right out after that, the rest of the Israelites, they keep running. It, I, I picture like over these 40 days, you've got a new crop of men who step up, they see him, and they're like, nope, hard pass. Like, I'm out. And they go, and so then the next burly guys step up, and they're like, yeah, not me either. And now picture that, the warriors with weapons, and in the midst of them, a shepherd boy. He's not there to fight. He's literally there to check on his brothers, and yet he hears what's going on. What does he do? He starts asking questions. First question, let's say one of us kills him. What do we get? Right? Total teenager move. Like, I'll do it, but what's in it for me? Right? And everyone's like, well, free housing, lots of money, and you get to marry the king's daughter. And he's like, sign me up for that, all right? Now, David's a man after God's own heart. So there's more motivation than that, for sure. And we see it in his follow-up question. Look at how he describes this person. Who is, talking about Goliath, this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, David sees very clearly right here what others can't. They're all looking at the same dude. Everyone else, including Saul, saw a giant man defying the ranks of Israel. David sees an uncircumcised Philistine, a man not chosen by God, defying the armies, not of Israel, but that of the living God. And his take causes quite the stir, especially amongst his brothers. So you've got his older brother who makes an appearance here, and he looks at him, he's like, you punk kid, what are you doing, you little boy? Like, you just want to see a fight. You just want to see someone die. You just want to see some blood. You've left the sheep. I know you're conceited. I know you have a wicked heart. I can see into it, which is hilarious because just chapters before, we learned that it's God who looks on the heart, and he can see that. But his older brother's got him figured out, right? You're just here to, to witness something crazy. And I love David's response. He's like, now what have I done? Can't I even speak, right? I don't have a ton of theological insight into this. I just have three sons and think it's funny that brothers were still brothers thousands of years ago. It's like, can I even talk? Here's why he's talking like this. David knew that he was anointed. Now, so did his brother, but his brother couldn't really see it in the moment. David knew, if I'm anointed to be king, like, how am I gonna perish here? And so he keeps talking about this, keeps declaring it. Word gets back to Saul, the king. Saul calls for him, and David goes to him and says, hey, I don't want anyone to lose sleep over this. Don't lose heart over this. Your servant will fight him. I'll do it. And I just picture Saul going, David, David. That, 
updated. That's cute, right? You're a kid. You're a teenager. You play the lyre, right? Not even drums or electric. Like, you play the harp. I've got generals twice your size, twice your age, and they won't step foot towards him. Now, David in this moment could have just run out there, taken care of business, and been like, see? See what I've done? But he didn't. He goes through the proper authority to get Saul's approval because he knows the people of God, we have one shot at this. And he appeals to Saul the only way he knows how to show that he's been tested for battle. And he says, look, I know I'm a shepherd, but when I'm watching those sheep, guess what? There have been times where lions would come and bears would come and would attack me. And you know what I did? I went after them. I took the sheep out of their mouths to save them and I beat the living tar out of them to the point of death. Now, if I can do that to a lion or a bear, what about this uncircumcised Philistine? He is gonna be like one of them. I'm like, come on, David, preach it. Like, I wanna follow this guy now, but he keeps going. He's like, if you're nervous about risking the fate of Israel's people or God's people Israel on me, don't be, because guess what? You're not risking it on me. The Lord rescued me from the paw of the lion and that of the bear, and he will do the same here for this Philistine. David trusted in God's promises so much that he was willing in faith to step in to defend God's honor, to defend God's people. So Saul says, all right, may the Lord be with you. But first, I'm at least gonna help you out, right? Let me, let me give you some, some armor. Um, you could look at this in a positive light, like Saul really wanted David protected. Uh, you could look at this in a negative light of he was too scared to go, but maybe he could take some credit if it was his armor. Like if I didn't take the shirt off my back, then he would have died. We don't know what it is, but either way, David allowed him to clothe him in armor, toe-to-toe, dressed a lot like Goliath, and then I just see him like my four-year-old Bill, who loves to put on my t-shirt and my shoes and try to walk around the house, right? And he can barely move. And David's like, I can't go in these. I'm not used to this. Like, these don't even fit. And I love this. How does he go into battle? In the form of a shepherd. Right, the imagery there. A shepherd stepping in to defeat death, not in the ways that people around him were expecting. David is who he is. God has been faithful in the way that David has lived in the past. And so he takes all the things that he knows, a staff, some rocks, a bag, and a sling, and he begins moving towards this Benaim. David has seen Goliath at this point, but now Goliath is getting a glimpse for the first time at his brave adversary who's come to challenge him. So he and his shield bearer move forward, and he gets a glimpse, and here's what he sees. He's little more than a boy, He's glowing with health, and he's handsome, and it ticks him off. It says he despised him. And so there's this this verbal battle that, that takes place here. Goliath speaks first, and he says, who do you think I am? A dog that you would send this? He's carrying a stick to come at me, and he curses David in the name of his Gods. And he says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to give your carcass to the birds and the wild animals, which was one of the 
greatest insults you could give someone to not give them a proper burial after death. And so David, seemingly without hesitation, fires back with some words. And he says, all right, you've got the best of the best weapons. You come against me with sword and spear that y'all fabricated. But here's what I come against you with. In the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. It feels like, if this is true, we've interpreted this analogy of David and Goliath wrong for centuries. Because who's the underdog here if that statement is real? He says, here's what's about to happen, Goliath. I'm gonna strike you down and then cut off your head. And it's actually you who will be given to the birds and the animals. Not just you, you and the army of the Philistines. Because, the, oh, I love this part. The battle is the Lord's and what? The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. If you underline in your Bible, take notes, underline this point. This is the point of this text, right? This is not an underdog story. This is like, how is God's name going to be made known? David can see it. This is what's gonna happen. People will know that God is more powerful than any other over all the nations. If I hear these words and I'm Goliath, I'm kind of having second thoughts at this point. And then I remember what he's looking at, right? It's a teenager. For all we know, his voice is cracking as he's saying these strong words. And so Goliath really doesn't hesitate because the, the strength of the words isn't matching the perceived strength of this human. But that is exactly who God chose to be in this moment. So now you get to the fight. Goliath creeps forward. You've got David running quickly. He takes out a stone. He slings it. It nails him right in the forehead. It says the stone sunk into his forehead. He falls to the ground. David doesn't have a sword to finish the job, so he runs over. He grabs Goliath's own sword, and he cuts off his head. Battle over. Right? The, the battle scene is, is a very small portion of this whole story. If you haven't noticed yet, when I, when I research and teach, I love to try to find themes that God traces throughout Scripture because I think it's one of the beauties of God's writing through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so I've highlighted a couple just to bring forward very briefly uh, from here. Number one, the stone sank. Why, why, why this imagery? Like, Because I read it and I go, the stone didn't really sink. Right? It doesn't disappear into his forehead. Maybe, I don't know, maybe like David had God-like strength and it just went and it was gone. But what if this is an image that God has used before, the sinking of enemies? I want you to think back to Exodus. And as God's people are leaving Egypt, the Israelites, right, they get to the Red Sea. They can't get through. God parts the water. They go through on dry ground. And then Pharaoh's armies pursue them. And do you remember what happens? After Israel gets out, the water consumes them. And Exodus 15 says, they sank to the depths like a stone. This is not the first time or the last time that God would defeat an enemy for his greater glory. All right, face first. Why does it say he fell face first? I'm not a physicist, but I feel like if one of you threw a rock at my forehead and it knocked me out, I would fall backwards, right? Why face first? You get this image of his face, his mouth in the dust. And if you remember the curse to the serpent, back in the garden when he was condemned to a life of crawling on his belly and eating dust. And you've got this, this image, even in that same imagery of this enemy, God says 
to the serpent, I'm going to raise up an offspring that will crush your head. Now, I may be reading way too much into this. I just think it's fascinating to see God writing this story. And there's so much happening for us to pull from. But as soon as this happens, the Philistines flee. Their camp is plundered. David takes two trophies, the head, which he takes to Jerusalem, and then Goliath's armor, which he keeps in his own tent. And Saul starts inquiring more about David, which if you read the last part of chapter 17, it's kind of weird. You're like, why is he asking who this is? Hasn't he done a lot of interactions with them? And I think part of it could be that he's inquiring, like, remind me who this guy's dad is. Is Jesse okay? Because Saul is about to take him from his family and to keep him, right, for the remainder of that relationship. And what's happening is Saul is unknowingly being used to introduce David into kingship to replace him. And that tension and jealousy is what drives the rest of the story between these two. Now, what do we do with such a classic biblical story? What do we take from this? How do we apply it? Of all the stories in the Bible, this one permeates our society the most. You, it, once you start looking, you will see it everywhere, even on TV, right? Survivor, one of the, the longest running reality shows that exists. A couple years ago, they had a whole David versus Goliath series where they put the strong, athletic, good-looking people all on one tribe versus the rest, okay? And I'll tell you what happened. It didn't play out like our biblical story. Uh, they had to switch tribes like 10 days in because David kept losing and getting injured. And so they switched it up. This is not our story, right? When, you, when we see things like this, we have to be able to say like, you know what that story was really about? Where we see it a lot is in sports, especially Razorbacks. We get compared to David a lot, right? I love this caption on the left. Forget comparing Arkansas versus Alabama to David versus Goliath. David had better odds, much better. <laughs> Thank you, whoever wrote that. It's, it's true. But is this our story? No, because it completely misses what God is showing. Let me show you what he's showing in Scripture. Maybe it's this. Is this our story? Anybody sweating? Just me? All right, which one's David? Which one's Goliath? Depends on which news channel you watch, right? Y'all, this is not our story. You will probably hear this in this tumultuous political year. You're gonna hear one of these two being compared in that story. This is not at all what we get lost in or what we interpret scripture to mean. God is not intending to give us this underdog story to say, hey, whenever you meet a situation or an enemy that seems impossible, you pick up that metaphorical sling and you let it fly, baby. That's not it at all. What is this story? This story is a greater story of what God is doing throughout all of Scripture. One of the things that I love to do to try to understand Scripture is to keep it simple. I'm actually a pretty simple-brained person. And so these are three questions from what we call Discovery Bible Study. It's a method we didn't invent Lots of missionaries, churches use it all over the world. And there's more to it than this when you study scripture. There's highs and lows and reading the story, rereading in a different version, summarizing, um, doing this as a group, trying to figure out what scripture's saying. But these are the, the three main questions that, that we ask. What does this say about God? What does this say about mankind? And how can I apply this to my life? So this is what our community group does every single week when we study scripture. These are the questions we use no matter what story? So we will do that tonight with this story. And so the application for you this week is to do this. Maybe as a group, yes, but 
as an individual, take the story, read it, and try to see what is this revealing about God, about mankind, and what he wants me to learn from this. And so I hope you will do that. I'm gonna give you a couple of observations real quick um, as we get ready to close. What does this say about God? So much, right? That his story is so much bigger than we probably can see at first glance. We see an underdog winning a battle. That's what we read. That's what we teach in a lot of ways. But what God is showing us is that there's Old Testament themes that he's tracing to lead to something bigger. One of the things that jumped out to me this time reading through, it's like every time I read stuff, I get new stuff, was that the people, Israel, wanted to be like the other nations. But here, God is very clear that he wants to be known to the other nations. That's the relationship, not to be like them, but to be known to them. And he chose to do that through a boy, like of all the people he could have picked to fight this battle, he chose a shepherd teenager. God is showing in this David's elevation from shepherd to king, and think of the parallels here. God delivering his king from death, not just that he could escape out of this situation, but on his behalf, a whole people would be able to experience life. Like, do you see what God's doing in the story of Scripture? Dig into it. There's a lot to be said about who he is. What does it say about mankind? We don't see what God sees, right? The way we perceive situations um, can be difficult sometimes, especially in regards to his timeline. When I look at David's life, I see a difference between his anointing and his appointing. Let me explain that briefly. He was anointed to be king at age 12. He was actually appointed king at age 30. And so like Mark talked about last week, there's this massive in-between of what is he going to do in that season. He was called to be king, but before king, he would be a shepherd, he would play the lyre, and he would serve the current king, right? Don't you think that at the end of this battle, David could have taken the throne at this point and the whole army would have followed him? Like, no question. But he waits patiently for God to remove Saul as king, which tells me how I can apply this to my life of there may be things that I'm a, 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 uh, anointed for, or we might use the word called for, but it's not my appointed time to step into those. And that can be really frustrating. So instead, what do I do in that season? Do I sit back with apathy and say, God, where are you? What are you doing? I feel like this is what you're leading me to, but you're not bringing it to fruition. Or do I walk faithfully in that season with him, even if it means playing a liar or shepherding sheep? Jesus walked this same tension. We, I've been reading the book of John with my sons very slowly, but every once in a while we'll see this line that talks about Jesus, whether he says it or someone says it about him, that his hour had not yet come. What that meant was like it wasn't time for Jesus to perform the act that he had been anointed for. It wasn't his appointed time. And so in our lives where we can't see what God sees, we have to try to put on lenses and check our lenses. Are we just seeing what we want and what we desire? Or are we looking through the lens of God's sovereignty and his promises? Because when we trust in God's promises, we can step into situations without fear. But a reminder to us, God's promise for us isn't that he will slay every giant in front of us. It isn't the health and wealth gospel that when we step into situations, all paths are clear and you're green light to go. What are his promises to us? that he brings us life, that he brings us hope, that we get to have fruit when we walk. This is the greatest promise, that we walk with him. 
That's the promise Jesus gives, which is a greater promise than David ever could have hoped for. It's the gift of God with us in life. That we get to walk with him so that for the same reason that we see in this story, the world may know that there is a God, that Yahweh is the living God. One final note um, that I want uh, us to think about as we go through this series is sometimes we may highlight these, sometimes we may not, but try to see the foreshadowings of Jesus in these stories of David. David or Jesus was said to be um, a son of David. He came from the lineage of David, which was a big, big deal. So sometimes David's example shows the Messiah coming in a positive light, like we see from this one. Other times, it's his failures that show the need for a true Messiah. But this story of David is building to something way bigger than just what's happening in this Old Testament. So one of the places that I see that is when David is appealing to Saul uh, on why he's fit for battle. So thinking of that lens, through that lens of Jesus, I want you to reread this. David said to Saul, here's why I'm fit for battle. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, you know what I did? I went after it and I struck it. And I rescued the sheep from the mouth of death. And when death, when that animal turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and I killed it. Do you see the imagery there? Like you fast forward to Matthew chapter nine and we see Jesus seeing the crowds and they look desperate and they look lost without hope. And you know what it says about Jesus, what stirs inside of him? It says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The only parallel that doesn't work from this story is when David runs after that sheep to rescue it and he pulls the sheep from the mouth of death, he destroys death right there. But we know what Jesus does is in order to remove us, he actually inserts himself into it to satisfy death once and for all so that we might find life. And that is good news that we can take from a story written thousands of years ago that still applies to us. And so when we hear or see David versus Goliath comparisons and whatever, we get a chance to kindly step in and go, hey, you know what? That's not what that story is about. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about the God who's been sovereign for ages. Let me show you kind of what he did there that would foreshadow what he would do through his son Jesus and how that's changed my life. These stories and the fact that culture wraps onto them gives us an opportunity to step in and say, can I tell you about Jesus and the life that he's brought to me? That is good news. That is good news that we are called to share. In fact, one of the uh, final questions that we ask in that Discovery Bible study, it's after those three, it's who can I share this with this week so that it doesn't stick with me, so that we begin making disciples? And I can't think of a better way to uh, exemplify that than this morning um, having some of our students, two of our students, share the life that Christ has given them, pulling them from death and bringing them into relationship by declaring that through public baptism. Hi, my name is Alex, and I'm one of six leaders for the 10th grade girls group. And if you're a part of Andy's family or if you're in our cell group, you can make your way on up here. We have two girls from our group getting baptized today, so it's an exciting morning for us. As they're coming up, um, I just wanna share that getting to hear Andy's story has been really sweet. And one of my favorite things is just how much she loves her parents. 
It is so sweet to hear her just abound with love for them. And it should be noted that Jason and Kelly are not perfect parents, like any of us parents, and their faith is not her faith. But watching them trust in Jesus and so firmly believe that he is real has made it very clear to her that she can do the same. Their faith and love propelled her faith and love. And something is different about you this year, Andy. You've become more willing to share and participate at Cell Group, and it's just been a real joy to have you with us. And I'm really proud of you for stepping out in faith, and um, we're thankful that we get to be here today because this decision carries a lot of weight, and we are all happy to carry that with you. Andy May, as a little girl, is. As soon as your mom could teach you the words to Jesus loves me, you would constantly walk around the house saying, the Bible tell me so. <laughs> well, it's been more than a decade, and just yesterday morning, when I came in your room to wake you up at 4 a.m., you had a 17-hour day of travel and competition with your color guard team, and you were already sitting up in your bed reading your Bible. Your mom and I are so proud of you, of your relationship with Jesus and your maturity. It is an honor for me to ask you, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Okay. Come here. I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, good morning. My name is Katherine Wilson. This is my husband, David, and our daughter, Esther Wilson. And I just want to share a little bit about her uh, journey. Um, Esther was born in DR Congo, and I think from a very early age, um, God made himself very evident um, in his presence in her life. And fast forward a few years, our family was living in Malawi, um, and we had gone to church out in this rural area. We had some friends in town that were teaching and at the end of the service, we're all praying and they invite um, anyone that wants to give their life to Jesus to come up on stage and we opened our eyes and we're surprised to see Esther standing up there on stage and so that was a really special moment for us. She was eight and then began like the seven years of doing what good Christian parents do where we start to kind of like pressure our kid of like, hey, you want to get baptized? What about now? Is now a good time? There was different opportunities for her to get baptized and some of her siblings were baptized and we're like, you want to go do it with them? And it wasn't the timing for her. And so we decided to stop pressuring her and trust the Holy Spirit was going to 
let her know when it was time for her to get baptized. And a few months ago, she hopped into the car after school and had been in Mr. Bauer's Bible class. And um, something he said in that class, she just knew like now was her time that she wanted to share with everybody that she was a follower of Christ. And so we're proud of her and thankful for everyone that came to watch her make this public profession. And I get the privilege of baptizing my daughter. And that's a major privilege as a dad. And it has been a journey. It has been a while. And we're thankful this day has arrived. And Esther, is it your public profession? All these people out here, everyone online that might be watching too, that Jesus is your Savior. Yes. And it's my privilege to baptize you, my daughter. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Raised with Christ the baptism, and raised to walk in newness of life. Hey, let's stand up, guys. Let's celebrate.
A, uh, a shepherd, a little shepherd boy going into battle so that the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, he defeated Goliath. The implications for us are immediate and, and obvious and really, really encouraging that we, in following our good shepherd, following our good king, empowered by the same Holy Spirit that emp- empowered David, are to live lives that allow the whole world to know that there is a God in Israel. God here, a God who loves us and is in control and is good and trustworthy. Um, Just a couple of really quick and easy touch points for y'all as we're um, together as a church. If you have a story that's marked uh, by some grief or some pain, we have a grief share that happens on Tuesdays, either from 1 to 3 p.m. or 6 to 8 p.m. Um, and that begins in February and goes through uh, into April. Also, if you are a part of our uh, legacy ministry or would like to be part of the legacy ministry, it's a uh, place of connection and, and community and studies and gatherings for um, 
older, more seasoned men and women in our congregation to gather and study and pray and connect and serve. And if that is at all an interest to you, we'd love, love to see you in the legacy ministry. Um, if you need prayer this morning, we have prayer available right in front of the baptismal. We'd love to pray with you. And students who are going to Panama, Belize, or Guatemala, don't forget that we have a training um, right after this. God bless you. We love you. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you all next week.